Hello, and welcome to what is the eighth uh, lecture in this uh, Middle East 101 series. Uh, I'm James Dorsey, your host today, and a, a senior fellow, research fellow at the Middle East Institute. Before I introduce our guest and theme, I'd like to urge you or remind you to please sign up for next week's um, SR Nathan Distinguished Lecture, which will be given by the uh, Assistant Minister of Culture and former Ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to France and Russia, Mr. Obar Seif Rubesh. It's a pleasure today to introduce Aisha El-Sarihi, a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, and soon to be colleague here in Singapore at the Middle East Institute, and we're very much looking forward to that. Aisha is a scholar who focuses on the politics and the policies involved with energy, renewables, and climate change. And she is going to be talking today in the section of the Middle East 101 lectures on challenges beyond economics, looking at what it means or what climate change means in a desert. Aisha, the floor is yours. We're very much looking forward to it. Before I, sorry, before I give you the floor, um, let me just give uh, or suggest we're really very much looking forward after Aisha's spoken for about 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, we're very much looking forward to a question and answer session. And I would ask you to put your uh, questions in the uh, chat function and we will then be able to, uh, to, to sort of collect them and get as many of those questions answered by Aisha in the process. Thank you, Aisha, welcome, and the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, James, uh, for the kind introduction, and uh, myself also look forward uh, to joining the team uh, there in Singapore. Um, so I'm gonna share my screen now, and once I share my screen, I cannot see everyone else. So, okay. So there we go. Um, so yeah, so uh, first of all, I would like to thank the Middle East Institute uh, for hosting me again uh, to deliver uh, a lecture and it is a, a lecture series uh, for this year. Uh, I was asked to speak about the challenge beyond economics, climate change uh, in the desert. And for today's lecture, I have chosen a, to focus on the water security in the Middle East. So the title for my today's presentation is Middle East Water Security in a Changing Climate. So what we will do in today's lecture, I designed uh, today's lecture around uh, four main questions. Uh, the first question is, uh, what do we really know about uh, uh, the Middle East when it comes to water? Maybe this is something you can start thinking of. And uh, uh, if I am like physically in the room, uh, I, I would really like to hear uh, your feedback on what do you know about the Middle East uh, when it comes to water. The second question is, uh, we'll focus on uh, answering the question, why the Middle East is the most water stressed region uh, on earth. And there we will speak about the different factors uh, that made the Middle East one of the most uh, water stressed regions on, uh, on Earth. And third, uh, with, when you have a region 
with high water stress, then you can think about the, um, uh, the security uh, issues that could be brought uh, by the water scarcity, both at the national level and the regional level, especially if there are shared water resources. And the last question will be, uh, okay, the Middle East is one of the most water stressed region. So how the Middle East have been handling the water scarcity, both at the national and the regional level? So let's start with the first question. Uh, Middle East and water. I, I think like from the second question, so you already like uh, had an answer and I assume like everyone else is familiar uh, with the um, uh, fact that the Middle East is one of the most stressed region uh, in the world. And perhaps uh, lately you came across those uh, headlines. Uh, for example, in July uh, of this summer, we heard about protests in Iran uh, and these have been triggered by water shortages. Uh, and unfortunately, when killed uh, in those protests, and uh, we also uh, heard about the electricity blackout uh, in Iran. Um, on and on, uh, we hear also more frequently uh, about the, uh, the, the uh, need for the dialogue between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan uh, to uh, around the, uh, the uh, grand, uh, 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 Ethiopian uh, dam, uh, and uh, there, there is an issue of the water uh, uh, shortages, uh, and that, uh, and also the the intent of Ethiopia uh, to to build the dam uh, for the reason of uh, generating electricity, but that is alter altering uh, the water flow that goes to Sudan and Egypt. So there is a kind of global pressure to uh, uh, have dialogue between the, these three countries. And so along with issues related with water shortages, and perhaps you also come uh, frequently uh, to uh, look at the region where there is more water. And that is because there, there is a frequency, especially in the last few years, we have been seeing a frequent uh, uh, happening of floods and the cyclones. Uh, uh, early uh, in this uh, in October uh, this year, uh, we th there was a Shaheen uh, a tropical cyclone that have hit uh, Oman and some a few parts of the UAE and, uh, and Yemen, and unfortunately, uh, it also uh, has uh, uh, killed uh, around thirteen people uh, in the country. So, th so there is like kind of an issue of. Uh, uh, long periods of drought and water shortages, and but also like there are some events where we have more water, which also affecting uh, the uh, water security uh, in the region. And if we look at uh, specific uh, figures or uh, uh, or the data around the water uh, scarcity in the region. Uh, the World Resource Institute, uh, and this is the map uh, from the World Resource Institute, shows that the Middle East is the most water stressed region on Earth, uh, and it only boasts 1% of the world's total renewable freshwater resources. 
Um, so if we look at uh, this map, uh, you see like, you know, uh, the, the color scale, the darker the color it gets, the more the region is stressed. So if you look at the, uh, the Middle East and North Africa, you can see it's, the color is between gray and uh, pretty much uh, uh, on red, which, which shows how uh, stressed uh, the region is in terms of water. And by the water stress, we mean the, um, the ratio of water withdrawal uh, compared to the uh, what uh, available uh, resources, either in terms of uh, groundwater or surface water. So uh, another um, uh, figures that we have also uh, when it comes to the water scarcity in the Middle East, uh, you can uh, also look at the per capita uh, availability of water resources. And here you can see uh, for almost all the Middle East countries, the, the, the availability of water resources per capita is something uh, five to six times less the world average, which is around 6,000 uh, cubic meter um, uh, per year. Um, and uh, the World Research Institute have shown that 18 out of 22 Arab states are below the renewable water resource scarcity annual threshold of 1,000 cubic meter per capita per year. And it's also like 13 out of 22 Arab states are below the absolute water scarcity threshold of 500 cubic meter per capita per year, as we can see from the figure. That said, and despite uh, the, the, these facts uh, and the fact that uh, the Middle East is one of the most uh, stressed, uh, water stress region in, in the world, uh, actually, uh, uh, th there are some also positive news here that 90% uh, of the population actually have access uh, to safe drinking water in, in the region. Uh, before moving to the next slide, I also would like uh, one, um, uh, one uh, insight that I want you to take from this figure uh, is that if we look at the per capita uh, income uh, or GDP across the MENA region, we can see that the, the MENA countries, they share uh, a common challenge in terms of the water there is water shortages uh, across uh, the region. However, the uh, Middle East countries differentiate in terms of uh, the per capita income. And interestingly, the higher, um, the higher the water stress the country is, the higher the per capita income. And so you when we move on in the lecture today, we will see how uh, different uh, MENA countries have responded to the water stress uh, in different ways and how the, the economic uh, conditions have helped in uh, having different ways in uh, responding to water scarcity. Here I just wanted to show you where the water comes from in the Middle East. Uh, so if we look at the figure 
uh, on the left, uh, we can see that surface water uh, is the major source of water in the region. It accounts for 58%. Uh, groundwater for around, uh, is the second source of water and it accounts for uh, 30%. And then although uh, there is a lot of uh, or, or a growth in terms of the desalination uh, across the region to create an additional source of water, at the moment, it only accounts for 2%. Um, and then if we ask also about uh, how about the uh, wastewater reuse, uh, th there is a, a progress uh, in uh, treating uh, wastewater and reusing it, but at the moment, it only accounts for 1%. In terms of the sectoral water use in the Middle East, uh, again, uh, here we have the agriculture sector is the major consumer of water in the region. And that is followed by the domestic sector and thirdly by the industrial sector. Uh, here, uh, uh, what I wanted to show is that um, Although the Middle East countries have uh, similarities in their water resources and also consumption, but they, 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 they are also differentiated in terms, or, or in terms of what sectors are, uh, in terms of the amount of the water use per sector. And here I uh, put an highlight, a highlight on uh, the Gulf countries. So for example, if you look at Bahrain, Kuwait and Qatar, you see that the municipal sector is the major consumer uh, of water. But if you look at Oman, uh, KSA, and UAE, the agriculture sector is the major consumer of water. And having this in mind, uh, you, you will see later on that different countries uh, will have different strategies uh, in rationalizing uh, the use of water and having different policies on how to uh, respond to the water uh, scarcity. So now moving on uh, to the uh, second uh, question, which is why the Middle East is the most uh, water stressed region uh, on earth? Well, uh, the Middle East is the first factor actually is the Middle East have arid climate conditions. And with arid climate conditions, uh, you have high temperatures already, and then you have uh, low levels uh, of rainfall uh, per year. Um, and this is one of the major reasons, uh, reasons on why the Middle East is the most stressed region on Earth. Um, apart from that, uh, also the, there is uh, a growing demand for water uh, in the Middle East. And uh, there are different factors like that leads to the, this growth in demand for water, including the population growth. So if we look at the figure on the right uh, of the screen, the upper figure on the right, you can see uh, the growth of the population in the Middle East between 1960 and 2020. In 2020, the population is almost five times uh, the total population in 1960. 
also uh, there's a, a, a general uh, expansion in industrialization and urbanization uh, in the region. So these are some of the major factors uh, that leads to a growing demand for water. A, another factor is the, although like we do have a water scarcity issue in the region, there is inefficient use uh, of water uh, in the Middle East. And uh, this comes from or stems from, uh, we have seen that the agriculture sector, for example, is a major consumer of water in the region, but uh, unfortunately there is no irrigation efficiency. And there is also, there aren't uh, enough incentives for the people to conserve water. For example, uh, the water tariffs uh, in the region are either uh, very low or zero uh, tariffs. So there isn't uh, much of incentives for the people to conserve uh, or rationalize uh, the use of water. And if we look at the figure on the right uh, at the bottom, uh, you can see, despite the water scarcity, uh, the, for example, the Gulf countries are uh, one of the top uh, uh, consumers of water on their capita basis, even compared to um, some industrialized nations like Germany um, or, um, or the USA or other developing countries like Chile. Another factor that uh, also uh, leads to uh, high consumption of water is the poor water governance and management. Uh, although this is not the case in all countries, but some countries suffer from poor water governance and management. And this is why uh, we have seen uh, protests in some countries like in Iran, uh, for example, and then another factor also is the conflict and occupation. Uh, we know that some countries in the region are under uh, occupation uh, and that uh, gives those kind, uh, these countries uh, a low uh, control on their own water resources uh, and they need, um, and without a proper collaboration with the occupant, um, they, they have uh, difficulties in accessing water resources. Um, last but not least, uh, we do have climate change as well. Climate change is going to exacerbate and about an additional uh, pressure on the water resources and an additional factor to what has been already mentioned. Um, uh, and I'm going in the next uh, two slides to highlight uh, a little bit more on how the climate change is affecting the region and uh, exacerbating the issue of the water uh, scarcity. So um, most of the models uh, that uh, project the temperature uh, across the region, they uh, suggest that there would be the temperature across the region is, will continue to rise uh, until the end of the century. And uh, if we have a moderate under an, a moderate case scenario, the temperature 
could rise to 1.5 to 2.3 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And this is the prediction of the model that we see uh, on the top. Uh, and in a worst case scenario, uh, the temperature uh, could uh, rise to 3.2 to 4.8 uh, degrees Celsius by the end of the century uh, if no proper climate action has been taken. And you can see how uh, the, you know, the color is gradually getting into red uh, the more we go forward to, towards the end uh, of the century. So the rise in the temperature is one of the reason. And then also climate models suggest that the, uh, the precipitation or the average monthly uh, 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 rainfall uh, across the region is also uh, estimated to be uh, declining uh, as we go towards the end of the century. And that is the case for both uh, scenarios, the moderate and the worst case uh, scenario. So you see that the, the color is getting more brighter uh, as we go towards the end uh, of uh, the century. So with that, uh, now I would like uh, to move uh, towards the um, third question for uh, today's uh, lecture. So when you have uh, a water scarcity, you uh, could expect a rise of uh, uh, social, environmental, economic, as well as political issues, not only at the national level, but also at the regional level, especially uh, when you deal with shared water resources. And for, for the, the Middle East countries, if we look at how the Middle East countries are uh, impacted by the water scarcity, uh, first of all, there are, there are gonna be um, implications to the agriculture, food security, and the livelihood. As we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, the agriculture sector consumes around 80% of freshwater resources, either from the ground or surface water resources. And uh, as an example, uh, the agriculture contributes significantly uh, to the uh, Egypt overall GDP through the Nile Basin uh, and providing more than 75% of the total labor force. So based on that, the World Bank estimates that by, 2030, uh, by 2050, the impact of water scarcity may cost the MENA countries something around uh, six uh, to 14% uh, loss of the GDP by the mid of the century. Also uh, for some countries, uh, there is dependence. Uh, water uh, is uh, a, a so, uh, the hydropower is uh, used for electricity generation. And that is, for example, the case uh, for Ethiopia. And then you have also uh, Rwanda uh, is depending on the hydropower for, uh, for the generation of the electricity. And also we have Iran. So 
whenever there is um, alteration of the amount of the water that is needed for the electricity generation, you could expect blackouts. And this is uh, one of the reasons why we, ha we have seen uh, protests in Iran most recently, uh, and unfortunately one has been killed. And then you can also think of the uh, probability uh, of the migration uh, and the probability of having climate refugees uh, uh, across the MENA region. So again, since uh, the agriculture for some country is a major source of income, if you cut the water resources in there, you can expect the migration of the people from the rural areas where the, uh, the agriculture sector is more active to urban areas. And this uh, for, is gonna put a farther pressure on the, uh, uh, the, the cities across the MENA region. At the moment, uh, around uh, more than half of the population in the Middle East are actually concentrated uh, uh, or live in cities. And with farther migration, we would put more pressure on the water resources in the cities. So, and also as a matter of fact, the Arab region hosts about 41% of the world's internally displaced people. And uh, uh, for the case of Syria, for example, in, 20, in 2016, more than 6.3 million people uh, have uh, endured uh, multiple displacement. And also that has been the case for Sudan with around 3 uh, million, Iraq also 3 million, and then uh, in Yemen. And this is also, this is something that you can think of that uh, is bringing um, the security issue, not only at the national level, but also at the regional level. Uh, uh, another issue that you can think of is the anti-government protests. Uh, this is unfortunately uh, has been already happening across the region, uh, in Yemen, uh, in Iran, uh, in Sudan and in Lebanon uh, because of the water shortages. And finally, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there could be cross-border conflicts. Uh, and this is especially if we are dealing with shared uh, water uh, resources. And so I'm going to show some interesting maps uh, that shows uh, how the MENA countries are sharing the water resources and which country is sharing with which. So I came across, uh, first of all, in terms of shared surface water basins in the Middle East, I came across this interesting map from the ESQA. Uh, it shows that uh, in the, there, there's over 66% of freshwater resources are actually originated uh, from outside the national border. And uh, 14 out of 22 Arab states are sharing a surface water uh, body. 
And uh, you can think of um, shared surface water basins like the Nile River, the Tigris, uh, Euphrates, uh, Jordan River Basin, uh, as well as the Sig uh, Senegal River Basin. So this is a, a huge amount of uh, uh, shared surface water resources. It is not only res also restricted to the surface water basins, but in, uh, in the Middle East also, the Middle East countries share uh, groundwater uh, um, uh, resources. And again, this is uh, another nice map from the uh, 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 an Esqua report. And so the, the color uh, in a brown or uh, orange uh, is uh, also like reflecting which countries uh, are sharing uh, groundwater basins with others. So in the GCC, you can see there are countries in, in the North Africa. Also, there are a few countries. And also uh, to just highlight a few facts, uh, uh, the, the report shows that there are 41 shared aquifers, uh, and these are present in 21 uh, countries out of 22 Arab uh, countries. Uh, there are some examples like the uh, basalt aquifer system between Jordan and Syria. Uh, you have also another aquifer shared between Oman and the United Arab Emirates. There is another one uh, between Jordan and Saudi Arabia for DC uh, sandstone uh, and, and so on uh, with the other also uh, countries. Uh, what I want to highlight on here from, from sharing those uh, maps with shared water resources and with the, uh, the challenges that water resources uh, are facing across the region, like the climate change, the increase in the demand for the water, the management of the water resources. These shared water resources actually could be either a source of collaboration uh, between countries in the region or without a proper management uh, and action, they could be a source of conflict uh, in the MENA region. So moving now uh, to the uh, fourth question for uh, today's lecture. So now we give facts about uh, how the, uh, the uh, about the water scarcity in the region and the sources uh, and the pressure that, uh, that the MENA region is facing and exacerbating the issue of the water scarcity. And also this idea about shared water resources. I now would like to uh, share with you on how the Middle East countries have been handling uh, the water scarcity. Uh, because as I mentioned earlier, 90% uh, of the population are actually uh, having access to safe uh, uh, drinking water. So let's also have other facts uh, about uh, how the, the region has been dealing uh, um, with the water scarcity. So one of the solutions that the region is adopting is water desalination. 
and the Middle East uh, alone um, is actually uh, hosting the majority of uh, desalination capacity in the world with around uh, 40 to 50, uh, 48 to 50%. Um, and that is followed by America, uh, by America, Asia, Europe, and uh, Africa. So, uh, so the Middle East accounts for 90% of the fossil fuel thermal desalination globally. And it is uh, in here led by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And according to the International Energy Agency, uh, it estimates that water uh, desalination in the region uh, could increase 14 fold by 2040 um, using, and, uh, and there is a growing uh, use of the reverse osmosis as a technology uh, that relies uh, on electricity for the water desalination. So uh, although the water desalination accounts for almost, uh, as we have seen earlier, 2% uh, uh, of total water resources in the region, but it is growing significantly in the, in the region. Uh, another uh, solution which is, uh, has a great potential for creating an additional water supply in the region is the wastewater reuse. So there is a lot of progress uh, across the MENA countries uh, in um, treating the wastewater. And about 82% 80, of the region wastewater is, um, uh, unfortunately, is not reused. Uh, but uh, uh, there is um, an 84% uh, uh, reuse of wastewater, uh, especially in the Gulf Cooperation Council. So, for example, in Oman, uh, it's around 78%. For Kuwait, it's uh, around uh, 100%. So again, uh, you can see the, the adoption of desalination and then the wastewater treatment. Uh, uh, although it happens uh, across the, the MENA countries, but you, you can see more progress in the GCC countries. And that is mainly because of the high uh, GDP um, income for those groups. And and also, as a matter of fact, uh, 11 out of 22 Arab states have adopted legislations that permit the use of treated uh, with uh, water. Uh, but again, uh, as a reminder, wastewater uh, reuse is accounting for only 1% uh, of the total water supply uh, in the region. Uh, speaking about the uh, shared water resources, there are also uh, the, the, the countries across the region are aware of the issues and the challenges that are uh, associated with shared water resources. And the, the acknowledgement of this fact has been there since 1985, for example, for the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council which has established a ministerial water and electricity cooperation com uh, committee uh, in 1985. 
which uh, and this committee uh, focus on managing all sources and use of water resources and development of legislations that could serve the GCC countries. Also, the GCC has established uh, a unified water strategy and implementation plan, um, uh, which has been approved in 2016. Uh, and this plan is uh, expected to be implemented between 2016 until the 2035. Also, the, the, Arab, the League of the Arab States in 2009 uh, has established the Arab Ministerial Water Council uh, that aims uh, to boost cooperation efforts across the, uh, the Arab countries um, uh, and to combat the water challenges uh, and security uh, in the region. And then also you have the, uh, the intervention uh, from the ESQA uh, with the establishment of the Committee on Water Resources uh, in 1995. And then you have also uh, another uh, regional uh, governance entity, which is MEDRIC, the Middle East Desalination uh, Research Center, uh, which has been established in 1996 and which is currently uh, located uh, in Masqat uh, in Oman. And uh, the main uh, mandate of it is to um, uh, enhance uh, the research, the training and the innovation uh, and the collaboration between countries uh, to um, uh, improve the, the knowledge transfer and technology to transfer between the Middle East countries and to, uh, especially in the area of the water desalination. And uh, this is uh, just to say, this is not an exhaustive list on the, the different governmental entities uh, that uh, are engaged in the, uh, enhancing the cooperation between the Middle East countries. And here I, 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 I put uh, a reference, which I really find useful. If you want to read more about the regional water governance and cooperation in the Arab region. And then uh, also um, uh, here, I would like to uh, uh, also bring some insights on the um, how the some of the Arab countries have been, uh, you know, uh, developing um, uh, joint agreements, uh, formally, informally, or even in terms of uh, developing technical committees between each other. Uh, to um, enhance their cooperation and the governance of their shared water resources. You have, for example, uh, there is uh, a joint authority between Egypt and Libya. Uh, you have a joint uh, technical committee between Iraq and Syria, um, and a joint co a commission, for example, between uh, Lebanon and Syria. And these have been established way back uh, in the um, for example, 1959 for, uh, between uh, Egypt and Sudan. Uh, and, uh, and, but here I want to uh, also highlight that uh, although there are some bilateral uh, cooperation between countries, um, unfortunately for shared water resources, it is better to have a basin-wide uh, 
uh, agreements, uh, which at the moment is not the case. It is either uh, unilateral or bilateral agreements. And also for the shared water resources, you need to think about the changes in the flow of the water. Uh, and especially there are the effects, for example, of the climate change. And so those also uh, kind of joint agreements needs to be revisited uh, from time to time. And this is why we, we do see uh, ongoing issues between countries uh, around the shared water resources. Finally, uh, I would like to conclude my uh, presentation with some uh, policy recommendation on how the Middle East countries can improve uh, their uh, water security, both at the national level and at the regional level. So I, I got this uh, nice uh, holistic framework for, from the ESQA uh, report uh, as well, which suggests that uh, in order to have a successful uh, water scarcity and security management, you need to think about how the water sector is actually interlinked with uh, too many other sectors and uh, conditions. The water security is uh, something that is linked to the sustainable development. Uh, without water, you cannot sustain your economic development. You cannot um, also uh, enhance in the environmental uh, uh, protection. Water resources are also linked to the human rights. Everyone ha has the right to have access to safe water uh, resources. And, uh, uh, and also like when you think about the water, you think about it not only at the national level, but at the regional level, and you can and you should uh, also take into consideration all the factors that uh, leads to affecting the water resources in your country or, uh, or regionally, including the impacts of the climate change. So here I listed a, a couple of uh, policy recommendations. Uh, the first one. Uh, is uh, in terms of how the governments can improve uh, the water security at the national level. That could be by improving the, the governance of the water, improving the governance of the water uh, for the Middle East, since it has uh, the agriculture sector is the major consumer of water. Uh, then there, we need to think about uh, innovative solutions on how to optimize water use for food production. And we can also make an advantage of wastewater treatment and reuse uh, in, uh, in the region, as well as thinking about the right incentives uh, that could uh, influence the people behavior and uh, also to think about uh, how we can raise the awareness of the people uh, on, in order to enhance the water uh, conservation and security in the region. And then also for, uh, uh, we, we need also to enhance regional water cooperation. Yes, there are some initiatives going on on there, but we also need to think more of uh, having further dialogue between the countries. Uh, we need to create uh, further platforms that 
look at the um, uh, the the uh, joint agreements not only in the unilateral or bilateral levels but also uh, in terms of basin wide level and again uh, we deal with uh, a, a major issue here so research innovation and technology development this is uh, pretty much needed uh, uh, in order to enhance the water security uh, uh, in the region. You can think of, of the desalination uh, on how we can use renewables, for example, to, uh, uh, to um, um, create water from the desalination. And then also uh, there is a need for the capacity buildings. As we have seen, some of the countries are more advanced in finding solutions than others. Uh, countries can uh, work on building the capacity at the national levels or we, they can work with each other in, transfer, uh, in transferring the, the know-how um, and enhancing other countries' uh, uh, capacity. And then also there is the finance, uh, uh, building water, uh, uh, sanitation infrastructure. It requires a lot of funding and as we have seen, the MENA countries diversify in terms of their income. So there's a huge room uh, for them to cooperate in order to enhance the finance flow uh, across the region. Uh, with that, I will conclude my presentation today and I pretty much look forward to your questions. Aisha, thank you very much. This was very informative and has already provoked a number of questions in my mind and several questions from the audience. Uh, what I'd I would urge the audience to put your questions in the chat function. We really want to hear from you and we want to get to as many of those as we can. While you do so, uh, maybe I can pose a couple of questions of my own to Aisha first. And uh, the first question that came to my mind is, in most parts of many parts of the world, we look at climate change as the cause or, or the, way we, the way we live, the way we consume, the way we uh, use resources as the main cause for a great number of problems. When I look at what you described, and I do not disagree in any form or fashion at what the reasons are why the, uh, the Middle East is the most water stressed part of the world, the question arises really whether there climate change is an aggravator, an accelerator, or and, and that the Middle East would have these problems and be the most water stressed region with or without climate change. Is that a is that a is that a incorrect or correct uh, thought? Well, I, I do agree uh, with your thought. Uh, I think climate change is an accelerator for readily existing challenges. So the impact of the climate change has been intensifying over the last few years. Uh, so uh, in this way, the climate change is an additional challenge. And from today on, it's gonna be perhaps like uh, in line with the other challenges if we don't manage the other challenges properly. So it's not gonna be something like you think as, you know, exogenous factor, but also as an indigenous factor. 
I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. The other the other question that I had is you you know I wish you I think perhaps you can elaborate on this. You mentioned that the uh, higher water stress is highest in higher income countries, which also has which the opposite, however, is not true. So, with other words, if you look at Jordan, which is not a high income country, but certainly yes. is a highly water stressed country, uh, and so the question really is. I mean, part of the problem, of course, is the way way Gulf states particularly consume, and therefore have, and they also have less water water resources as such. But nonetheless, uh, the question is: is uh, is it going to be change in patterns of use of water, of consumption, whether it's agricultural, industrial, or? Uh, um, and, and personal that's really going to cha change the problem or is this a problem that may not have a real solution? Well, yeah, so for in terms of the consumption of the water and the change in the behavior, we wouldn't see any changes uh, if we don't have the right incentives uh, to put a pressure for the industry, for example, for the agriculture and uh, also at the individual level, we need the right incentives uh, for the people to reduce their consumption. Uh, as I mentioned in the lecture, uh, the water tariff, it is either zero or it is very low. So it also, it doesn't reflect the, uh, the cost of the production. And so that actually wouldn't create uh, any uh, economic incentive for the people to consume less of the water. So the government in intervention is definitely needed in this situation. Otherwise, we will not see any changes uh, in the future. Even if you... we speak about the climate change, even th these like kind of information also might have not reached to the people uh, and the individuals. Uh, so they would continue consuming. So we need some uh, uh, incentives are out there. Talking about incentives, you met, uh, you also mentioned before uh, uh, the the basin approach to to solutions, and really, the, uh, in some ways, I think the gold standard for for all of these things was uh, the two thousand European Union Water Directive which really established one, the principle of, the, of, of a river basin or a basin uh, approach, but the basin approach had to be one in which all stakeholders were involved and had a say in, in how these issues were approached. It had the principle of the polluter pays and it had indeed the principle of market price for, for the market price of water being charged Rather than a subsidized uh, uh, a subsidized amount, so that in fact the way that we you know we look at what we do with electricity, we turn the light off in a room if we're leaving that room in the evening, but we don't necessarily turn the water crane off if we're going walking away for a little while. And so my question is: To what degree is the European Water Directive or the principles that are that are involved in the uh, uh, in that directive and you know being used worldwide the nile is just one example 
of where the river basin approach was, was, was applied. Whether all of those principles are principles that are being looked at uh, as an integrated policy in the, in, in the Middle East. Yeah, so I think that the, the, the European uh, approach is a really good approach, uh, but when it comes to the Middle East, I think we can uh, take a step back uh, before thinking about the implementation of those principles in the Middle East. Because in the Middle East, uh, an initial step that we need to focus on is in creating uh, more platforms for the dialogue uh, between countries and bringing the different stakeholders uh, together. Now, there are some platforms, uh, one of them, uh, for example, called the Ecopeace. The Ecopeace is a campaign between Israel, uh, Jordan, and uh, Palestine. Um, uh, the idea behind it is to bring the experts uh, and they can discuss how they can uh, improve uh, the water access between the three uh, of the countries. Um, and then I also mentioned metric uh, as another example. Uh, however, uh, these are mostly uh, campaigns and they are mostly informal. Uh, for the Middle East, we need more of those formal um, platforms that bring countries together. And not only having that platform, but we also need a commitment uh, for the countries uh, to. Um, to uh, you know, stick with those commitments. And also uh, th there needs also a continuous uh, follow-up uh, on the agreements that the country established between each other because you know, uh, if the, the water demand continue and the, uh, with the impacts of the climate change, uh, you can see changes in the flow of the water. So also those agreements needs to be revisited uh, uh, frequently and uh, needs to be um, adjusted uh, very uh, frequently. And then with that, uh, uh, the countries in the Middle East can move to the next step and then implement those uh, principles that have been implemented uh, in Europe. Uh, but for me, I think that is uh, more of advanced a stage for the Middle East as it stands uh, today. Thank you. Um, you uh, mentioned desalination as one solution in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, three questions, two of them. One of them is from Alex Arduino, who is a future colleague of yours and a colleague of mine at the Middle East Institute, who's asking whether or not desalination and it, or notes, he notes that desalination energy is an intensive process and less attractive for poorer countries in the Middle East and can have significant negative impacts on the environment, even for richer countries. And so the, his question is, is, as water scarcity increases, will desalination go down, uh, go, become more palatable? My question is whether the, uh, the, the emergence of reverse osmosis to some degree mitigates the concerns that Alex has been mentioning. And then another colleague of ours, Georgi Bustin, is asking whether Middle Eastern countries can desalinate, desalinate based on, on utilizing solar energy. So maybe you can take those three questions together. Okay, sure. So yeah, so desalination, uh, although it provides a solution uh, in creating an additional source of water supply, uh, in the region, 
yes, it is uh, capital intensive and uh, the countries with uh, less uh, economic resources cannot afford it. Uh, for example, you have uh, Palestine. Uh, Palestine uh, uh, cannot afford uh, uh, establishing its own uh, uh, water desalination uh, plants. So for example, uh, there is a, a Aqaba desalination plant, which has been developed by uh, Israel. And uh, the idea behind it is uh, Israel will be the provider of the water, but it can sell that water to the Palestine and uh, also can share water with uh, Jordan. However, uh, there is, uh, as mentioned in the question, there are environmental side effects of the desalination. There's the brine water that comes out of it. So also there is an issue uh, with the brine water that comes from this Aqaba plant uh, that where the Israel is uh, actually planning to uh, take it through a pipeline to the Red Sea. So the, the, the water originally comes to the plant blood from the Red Sea and the brine water is, you know, uh, bumped to the uh, Red Sea. So there are also uh, other environmental issues um, around it. And there's also some tension on uh, the impacts on the Red Sea itself. Uh, and also speaking about the environmental impacts of the desalination. So this is also that the countries in the region, especially in the GCC, this is something that the countries are aware, the governments are aware of. And uh, so there, are, there is a use of different technologies. So thermal desalination is actually energy intensive and it depends uh, intensively on the fossil fuels, either it is uh, natural gas or the oil. Uh, but then there is a new, the, the emerging technology, which is uh, a reverse osmosis technology. Now, reverse osmosis technology is uh, less energy intensive technology, and it depends uh, on the electricity uh, for its operation. And, um, and in this way, it reduces the pressure on the energy uh, uh, resources. And this is actually for the Gulf countries uh, is creating an advantage. For, so in the Gulf countries in the future, uh, their future plans and contracts for the water desalination, they aim to uh, use more of reverse osmosis technology rather than focusing on the conventional way. And that brings an additional advantage, which is we can save the energy instead of using it for desalination, we can save it and you know, either use it for other um, economic development in, within the country or, or we can export it in the international market. Uh, in terms of the use of the solar uh, energy, this is also, I wouldn't say that the countries uh, in the Middle East are not aware of, there are some bilateral projects there is research uh, on the use of the uh, renewable energy to run the desalination plants, but at the moment it's uh, mainly at the pilot stage, uh, but it would really help in reducing the emissions that comes from the desalination. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so I hope this answer the three questions that I had. Thank you. Uh, I, I just want to note and correct me if I'm wrong, 
that Oman hosts what is the oldest formal cooperation between the uh, between Arab states and Israel, I think created to, uh, as a result of the Madrid uh, peace process in the 1990s, which is the Middle East uh, Desalination Research Center in Oman. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. And uh, yeah, I listed it as metric. So yeah, I, I use the shortcut. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been there. They are doing a lot of work on, you know, uh, in advancing the research on the water desalination. Uh, they do a lot of uh, uh, work on training and capacity building. Um, and they try also to uh, create platforms for the dialogue between the Arab countries. So they can bring the experts uh, who can uh, think about the solutions that enhance the cooperation between the countries, especially in the area of the water desalination. So yeah, absolutely, you are right. Thank you. Um, I've got three interrelated questions uh, related to the uh, Grand Ethiopian, Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam. Uh, again, Alex uh, asks whether or not uh, uh, the, the dam and the issue demonstrates the concerns and complexities of freshwater disputes between states. He asks if there's any solution that can accommodate all the involved parties, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan. And related to that, uh, Georgi uh, asks whether or not there is a likelihood of war over water between Ethiopia and Egypt. And then much more broader, what is the likelihood of war over water in the Middle East? Right. Um, yeah, so in terms of the Jared, the, the, the Grand uh, Ethiopian Residence Dam, um, uh, I think um, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not necessarily an expert on finding the solution on how the three states can uh, find uh, a collective solution uh, in there. But I think uh, if we have the right uh, dialogue and if we bring the, uh, the right experts to discuss the issue uh, on the same table, and I, I believe there would be a solution. In terms uh, of the likely of uh, wars that could happen between countries over the scarce water resources, uh, I would, I would say it is, it's uh, highly unlikely because we are seeing uh, more progress uh, on the dialogue between uh, the countries. Uh, maybe not necessarily uh, in terms of, at the moment, focusing on water, but for example, most recently we have seen this Iraq summit where um, uh, the, the Iraqi government has hosted uh, people from uh, Iran to uh, facilitate the dialogue between Iran and, uh, and Saudi Arabia and also between the other countries uh, in the region. So, and also with the international uh, pressure uh, to, uh, for the, the Middle East countries to, uh, to be diligent and to be also having the right dialogue in between each other, I think uh, having war and conflict is uh, highly unlikely. Thank you. Um, coming back to desalination for a moment, Asif Shuja, another colleague of ours here at the Middle East Institute, asks whether uh, Israel's uh, integration into the, into the Middle East 
will be further facilitated or whether um, desalination will be a major strategic factor in its integration in the Middle East, given the fact that it, Israel's expertise in desalination, as well as water, wastewater recycling is among the best in the world. Uh, okay, so I think uh, desalination perhaps, um, if we speak about Israel and the Gulf Arab states, uh, both of the, both, uh, like the Israel and the GCC countries have been uh, pioneers on adopting the desalination technologies. So perhaps between the GCC and Israel, it's, it's not gonna be the uh, major driver for the integration. Uh, but if we speak about Israel and other uh, Middle East countries like Jordan, Palestine, um, uh, and the, 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 the uh, high know-how uh, of the water desalination in Israel, that could be a major driver for the integration between Israel and other Middle East uh, countries, because you know other uh, countries like Jordan, they can uh, or uh, Palestine, they cannot afford uh, the 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 capital cost of desalination plants, and uh, also uh, with the right um, incentives, uh, there there could be a share of the water supply that comes from Israeli uh, water desalination. Thank you. Uh, Georgi again asks, uh, given that uh, with the uh, pandemic related slowdowns, both in transportation, you know, aviation particularly, but also highway traffic, as well as industrial uh, slowdowns, whether that has had a measurable positive effect on the environment in the Middle East. And I would add to that question that if that is the case, are there lessons to be learned? Well, yes, certainly. Uh, uh, if we uh, also specifically because of the, there was a decline on the use of transportation, especially during the lockdown uh, times. Uh, there's uh, Mohammed bin Rashid um, Center, which measures the uh, um, the air pollution. Air pollution. Uh, it actually have shown uh, there there has been images that have shown a decline uh, or significant reduction in the air pollutants uh, in the atmosphere during the lockdown uh, times. Um, and so uh, what uh, we can uh, and certainly there are lessons that can be uh, taken. Uh, the major lesson is that if we would like really to find uh, solutions for the environment, then we, we can be in control of the consumption. Uh, we can be in control of our transport. Um, and what happened during the, Dana, uh, the, the pandemic is we have seen advancement on the digital economy. So that uh, has kind of uh, created a shift on how we view uh, different things like the need for transportation the need to go uh, to to work um, uh, and what other platforms that we can use uh, uh, as an alternative way of uh, communication so these are kind of alternatives that have been actually there but we never have been enforced to use them so now we have we kind of have alternative solutions uh, that we can use today 
um, and we can uh, direct the solutions to whatever uh, um, uh, challenge that we want to tackle, like the environmental issues. Now, uh, maybe the pandemic has uh, shown that it is okay to work from home. And if, that, if we could uh, enable that kind of flexibility, and if we could enable the use of, you know, uh, digital platforms like the Zoom that we are using today, the MS Teams, then we can also minimize the use, uh, uh, the need uh, of traveling to be involved in meetings. And so in that way, we can think of those as really lessons and solutions uh, to tackle the environmental issues that we have uh, in the region. Uh, for example, also, there is a, a high consumption of electricity uh, in the region, and that puts a, a pressure on the energy resources. So uh, if we can reduce our electricity consumption and we can make an advantage of the uh, digital economy, then why not? You've touched a lot upon uh, the issues of consumption and, and changing consumption patterns. And it strikes me that we've talked a lot about that in terms of government policy and government policies, creating incentives, raising prices, whatever it may be, uh, to, change, um, uh, to change behavior. The, my question is whether, obviously, the other, another factor in this is going to be education. But beyond education, my question is whether concepts like eco-Islam, uh, so bottom-up approaches, uh, whether they, uh, whether you see those as being major contributors or not? Yeah, yeah certainly. Uh, yeah, so uh, so far, I uh, perhaps I pretty much highlighted on the need of the top-down solutions where the government intervention. Uh, is uh, providing uh, solutions in the region. And the reason behind that, uh, across the Middle East, we, we do have top-down governance. Um, uh, and, and that is like, what, and the government is uh, playing a major role uh, in providing the, the provisions of electricity, of the water, and so on and so forth. So for that specific reason, the government uh, intervention is, uh, likely to be uh, providing a major solution for those kind of issues. But I, I totally agree with you. We need a bottom-up solutions and we need uh, to induce uh, the individuals uh, to be involved in the process uh, uh, and not only um, having a pressure from the uh, government. Um, with that, yes, uh, Islam rules could play uh, um, a role in changing the behavior, uh, but I would say education uh, from early stages is a really important factor to uh, enhance the uh, citizens' awareness about uh, the consumption. However, I would say if we don't have economic incentives, perhaps uh, the, the education and the Islamic uh, beliefs could be secondary factors that could take us uh, to the uh, desired solutions in terms of the water management. 
Thank you. Uh, we still have a few minutes, so I would urge the uh, audience or members of the audience to please, please keep your questions coming. We have a question from Dr. Abhishek, who's asking, digital economy will also require energy to function. Is the Middle East focusing on making this sustainable? Um, well, um, I don't really have the expertise in this area specifically. So I might skip the question and I would apologize to. Um... Okay. Um, Georgi has asked, do you think that better caption of torrential rainwaters in wadis could help in countries like Yemen and Egypt? Can you please say it again? Do you think that better capture of torrential rainwaters in wadis could help in countries like Yemen and Egypt? Yeah, definitely. I think this is one of the innovative uh, solutions that the, the, some of the Middle East countries can harness on. Uh, I have seen the, uh, uh, the application of this technology in uh, the southern parts uh, of Oman which is very close to Yemen uh, in, in Lofar. Um, this is one uh, for, for, for the southern part of Oman and for Yemen, for example, they do have uh, the seasons where there is a, um, a lot of water uh, in, the, in the air where it can be captured uh, on the seasonal levels. So what I would recommend in this area is to do more research and more of the pilot projects. There are already there, but maybe we need to do it uh, uh, and take it to the next level uh, and scale it up. I wanna come back to agriculture, if I may, which is such a dominant part of, of overwhelming part of water consumption in the Middle East. And I think the question is twofolded. One, uh, how much does this have to do with uh, farming methods and the need to upgrade uh, and, and modernize whatever you want to call it, uh, the way agriculture is, uh, is done in the Middle East? And the other question is, about it is its viability. So if we go back a number of years, we, you, know, you had a Saudi Arabia that was uh, aiming to be uh, self-sufficient in wheat and then from one day to the other decided that it wasn't going to produce wheat. Yeah. It was going to import it. And so, so you have you know, the question of, on the one hand, the efficiency of production and methods of production, but you also, have, on the other hand, have the issues of food, food sustainability and food security and what is, what is viable and what is not viable. Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, for the Middle East, um, I think uh, when we speak about the optimization of water use in the agriculture, uh, we need very innovative solutions uh, in this area uh, because uh, you know that uh, we have seen that it is the most water stress areas, uh, regions uh, uh, in the world. So um, it is not an issue that has not been tackled at all in the region. There is uh, the advancements of the uh, irrigation technologies that can use water more efficiently. Uh, there is also uh, the raise of the awareness on what uh, 
crops that can be used uh, that can adapt to the harsh environment in the region. And the government has uh, the intervention uh, to you know, prevent the, uh, the, the planting of crops that are of high use uh, of water. And uh, also they are creating the incentives for the farmers uh, in order for them to use the crops uh, that are uh, of less water use. I know, for example, here uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, the government has banned the planting of uh, balm trees uh, in the uh, new parks uh, because the, the balm trees are uh, consuming a lot of uh, water and we are in a very stress, uh, 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 water stress region. And, and also um, we need to come up with uh, innovative uh, farming methods for the region. I know for the UAE, for example, what they are doing, they are trying to adopt this technology, uh, which uh, enhance the vertical, uh, the vertical uh, farming where you can have, uh, you know, greenhouse uh, gas, uh, uh, greenhouse uh, how, uh, greenhouses to uh, create the vertical farming. Uh, so this is also, uh, and we need to also dedicate further research and innovation uh, in this area to come up with the solutions that enhance the food security uh, in the region. Uh, in terms of the viability, uh, yes, also the region cannot afford the trial and uh, the error uh, when it comes to uh, the use of the water. Yes, Saudi Arabia had uh, the experience where they actually, the idea was uh, to enhance the food security uh, in the country. And it, it gave the incentives for the farmers to plant uh, the, the wheat. But after a while, the government has realized that has put a lot of pressure on the water resources. So then the government have decided to stop the uh, wheat planting uh, in the country. Uh, and so what I want to say here in terms of the viability, uh, I think uh, holistic uh, uh, and strategic studies are really needed when we think about the solutions that fits to the specific conditions of the Middle East. Thank you. I, Samantha wants to thank you for your very informative talk and says that in her opinion, or in your opinion, she wants to know how effective are the current cooperation uh, plans among the various Middle Eastern countries in combating water scarcity and climate change. Uh, even if the progress and whether progress is slow but steady, and whether they are likely to meet their goal, the goals that they have set for themselves. Well, I would say so. Thank you very much, Samantha. I would say um, there is a progress. Yes, uh, at least we do have an um, uh, readily existing platforms uh, between some of the Middle East countries. Uh, how, however, we still see the issues are out there. For example, we still see the issue between Ethiopia, Sudan, and, and Egypt. Uh, we see the issue between Iraq and Iran. Uh, also the issue between, uh, you know, Palestine and Israel. So what we need, we need to put uh, more efforts 
to enable uh, further cooperation between the Middle East countries. And not only that, uh, we need also commitments. So as I mentioned earlier, although these uh, platforms do exist, uh, they, they, they are, most of them are informal. Um, and so we need to take them to the next level, uh, make them formal. And not only that, we need also to make the uh, commitment and um, periodic, uh, periodic follow-up. So, and the climate change issue is, uh, uh, it is a good point to mention it here. Uh, actually, um, the climate change issue is not necessarily integrated in the discussions around the water and the regional water management uh, in the Middle East. So this is something that we uh, also need to consider uh, in here. So I think uh, I would say there is a progress, but it's not uh, pretty much steady. Uh, and to get to the, 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 need, uh, the desired uh, goals, uh, we need to do more efforts in this area. You talked about cooperation platforms. Does the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council at this point have the will or the ability to create those kinds of platforms? Well, the GCC uh, region actually uh, has established uh, a ministerial water and electricity cooperation committee in 1985. And so the, the GCC is aware of the importance of cooperation. Uh, and that is also mainly because some of the GCC countries, they share groundwater uh, basins. An example that Oman share a groundwater basin with the UAE. Uh, and, uh, and then also the GCC has established a unified water strategy and implementation. Uh, a plan uh, which aims to implement this plan uh, between 2016 and 2035. Um, whether there is a progress in the implementation uh, of this plan, I think most of the meetings uh, that happens uh, to follow up in this plan are uh, focused on the technical and uh, knowledge share. So. Um, and then I think they happen only, um, those meetings happen uh, once a year, but for a water issue, I would uh, think that we need at least uh, three, two or three uh, meetings per year. Uh, and we need to integrate the, the, the challenges brought by the climate change into the, uh, the discussions. Thank you. Uh, Clemens Chai, another colleague of, uh of ours at, at the Middle East Institute just proved that great mind think alike. He's asking the question that I was about to ask you, uh, and that is, is Saudi Arabia's green initiative realistic? The campaign drive or drive to plant 10 million trees in the kingdom and an additional 40 billion trees across the Middle East, or is it merely a public relations show? What are the challenges to such a massive reforestation program? Right, so uh, uh, what we are going to expect by the end of this week on the 23rd of October, there is a, a, the, the Middle East Green Initiative Summit where the uh, official uh, 
people from the government will come and speak about how the country is going to implement this initiative on, on the ground. Now, yes, I totally agree that implementation of this, uh, 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 of such an initiative with this scale is uh, bringing too many questions around the challenges that, uh, on, on how we are going to implement it. You know, because there's the, uh, the water supply issue, where the water will come from. Uh, I, I still don't have an answer for that. And then what type of, uh, of trees that are going to be uh, planted, but uh, from readily existing initiatives, actually there is a, Riyadh, a green Riyadh initiative, uh, which, is, uh, ha which has been unfolding. Uh, and this was part of vision 2030 and uh, the uh, NTB, the National um, Transformation Program which aims to uh, also transform many areas in Riyadh uh, into green areas. Uh, but the way that has been done so far, most of the plants uh, that are selected for this initiatives, they are um, less water incentive plants that can uh, um, adapt to the harsh and the desert uh, environment uh, here in the kingdom. And I would imagine uh, for the Middle East Green Initiatives, that would be a case. And I would imagine that there will be uh, strategic studies on how this initiative will be implemented. But uh, like everyone else, I also look pretty much look forward to the summit by the end of this week, so we can hear more from the officials. Thank you. We're unfortunately nearing the end of this. But before we close, Dr. Abishkek, uh, sorry, um, let me just check here. Uh, I think we've uh, run out of, yeah, we've run basically through all the questions that there are. Uh, may, it may be that you at the end, do you have any closing remarks that you would like to make or thoughts that you would like to share with us? Well, uh, I want to take the opportunity actually to thank you, James team in the Middle East Institute for having me. I hope that today's session was uh, really insightful. And perhaps it's a session that triggers, uh, you know, the collaboration between the Middle East and Singapore, because I know in Singapore, desalination is also playing a major part in there. Um, and uh, perhaps, uh, uh, and also uh, water scarcity is also an issue for Singapore. So I hope this also triggers a, a cooperation between the two, uh, the, the country and the region. Thank you. Well, I have no doubt that this contributed to a dialogue uh, that will uh, continue on ways of cooperation. I also think that the fact that you will be in Singapore will be a major factor in terms of furthering that discussion. And uh, I'm sure that we will have many more of these. It's for us to thank you for what was a really informative and very comprehensive uh, discussion of the water issues in the Middle East. And certainly one that I learned a lot from, and I'm sure that many of those who uh, participated in the webinar today uh, also did. Uh, I also wanna obviously uh, thank the MEI events team that has always made this possible. And without them, none of this would happen. And finally, 
before uh, we all say goodbye, let me remind you again uh, to please sign up and join us for next week's um, SR Nathan Distinguished Lecture by the uh, UA Assistant Minister of Culture. And also for next week's on Thursday, I think it is the ninth installment of the Middle East 101 series, which will focus on women and youth. Thank you, thank you Aisha again for joining us. Thank you all for participating and joining us. And hopefully we will see you all next week. Good night from, from, uh, from me and all the best. Thank you very much, James, and thanks to everyone. Thank you very much.